Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Another fateful day here in Israel. It began with determined protesters blocking the entrances to the Knesset. They were trying desperately to stop their lawmakers from passing legislation, which is seen as the first step in a judicial overhaul they fear will be the beginning of the end of liberal democracy in Israel. Ultimately, they were unsuccessful. The law eliminating what is known as the reasonableness standard was passed. Over recent days, demonstrations against the overhaul have taken place at the U.S. Embassy branch office in Tel Aviv, with direct appeals to President Biden to use American leverage to steer Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu away from what they see as a dangerous path. Our guest this week on the podcast is more than familiar with those offices. He served there not once but twice as the U.S. ambassador to Israel. I'm honored to welcome former Ambassador Martin Indyk to the podcast. He is currently the Lowy Distinguished Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Martin, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, thank you, Allison, for having me. So I've brought you here to discuss specifically recent remarks regarding cutting military assistance to Israel, but I don't think there's any way we can ignore the current events, the breaking news. As we record, the Knesset has just passed a law eliminating the reasonableness clause, and it's viewed as the opening shot in a sweeping judicial overhaul, which would weaken legal constraints on government actions that the Israeli government wants to take. And as we know, it's caused a painful rift in the country with seven months of mass demonstrations opposing it. You were visiting here last March, I remember, and participated in one of the demonstrations. How do you feel now about the passage of this first law? I think it's a very dark day in, in Israel's history. Um, on the eve of uh, Tisha B'Av, of all days, I'm deeply worried about the what happens next. The divisions in the country are already manifest in the hundreds of thousands of people who have come out to demonstrate to try to stop this anti-democratic law from passing. and. and uh, and yet the determination of the uh, government parties to to go ahead, uh, it really leaves both sides um, kind of staring into the abyss. And it's not clear where things will go from here, but, but I don't see uh, a way back. And uh, I'm, I'm very worried about the future of the country. From what you know of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, were you surprised by what looked like a hard line on this issue, on his unwillingness to compromise and soften the language even of the reasonableness law? I think that Prime Minister Netanyahu is the victim of circumstances that he created by giving power to these far-right parties and and uh, people within his own uh, Likud party, um, that was the only way in which he could regain power after four unsuccessful election attempts to do so. And uh, in effect, they took him hostage. Um, but it, it was of his own making, he made this bed. Uh, and, and what it did in effect, and now we can see it very clearly, is that it systematically took away his freedom of action. He was very clear in reassuring the world 
particularly in the United States, that we shouldn't worry about these extremists, Ben Gvir and, and Smotrich. And he had the hand, his hands on the steering wheel. Well, it's now clear that he doesn't have his hands on the steering wheel, um, that they do, that whatever willingness he had to compromise or buy some time, kick the can down the road, and there were all sorts of reports in the last few days um, that that's what he was he was trying to do. Nevertheless, they were determined to go forward and he didn't have the ability to stop them. Because in the bottom line about Netanyahu that we've seen over so many decades is that he will always put his political survival above his instincts for statesmanship or his instincts for the well-being of the country. And nothing seemed to move the needle this time, not the you know, hundreds, over thousands even, of uh, uh, military reservists saying that they would uh, no longer volunteer for their very important service in the military if uh, this overhaul began to be passed, and not even the leverage that was attempted to be used by President Biden. Those two things worked last time in getting uh, Netanyahu to take a pause, but this time they were both unsuccessful. Ironically, it may may well be that because they succeeded last time, uh, they could not succeed this time. I say this in retrospect, uh, that, that if Netanyahu had given in a second time um, to the opposition in the street and, and from army reservists and so on, that um, he, he essentially it would have been a victory for, for the opposition, just like he can claim a victory by pushing it through now. And and then it would have strengthened the opposition. I suspect he calculated that he would basically have to give up the whole thing. And to give up the whole thing meant effectively that, that he would be even more dependent on the willingness of the extremists in his government to uh, stick with the government and not bring it down. So um, I suspect that he felt cornered and um, that he was better off trying to battle through this and hope that once this legislation passed, you know, he would live to fight another day and could postpone the other legislation, try to sweeten the bitter poison pill that he's just inflicted on the nation. I'm sure it didn't help his state of mind or his willingness to us uh, to stand and fight, given that only this morning he was released from the hospital after having a pacemaker implanted. And in fact, President Isaac Herzog returning from his visit to the White House had to go directly from the airport to the hospital to discuss the situation with the prime minister. Right. When you think about it, that could have, could have uh, been an, uh, another justification for postponing the vote, um, looking for, for a way to pursue a compromise. But he clearly chose not, not to take it. He'd rather put further stress on his heart by going to the Knesset uh, to vote on this than, than to find a way to postpone it. There were all sorts of technical ways they could have postponed the vote. So I think it's a, it's a sign. First of all, he's under a huge amount of stress because that's what impacts your heart, somebody who has a heart condition, I can testify to that. And secondly, uh, that he was nevertheless determined 
to uh, go ahead. Uh, I think it's a, it's a manifestation of that that determination that that he had no way back. His best way was to just plow ahead and, and deal with the damage afterwards. Martin, you served as ambassador to Israel in one of the country's most dramatic moments that created I, what I think is was its uh, greatest painful internal rift until this moment, the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin by Yigal Amir, a right-wing opponent of the Oslo peace process. And again, as I mentioned, you were here in March and you participated in these demonstrations. I'm curious on your reflections as to um, the the rift in the country, the uh, the internal crisis that you witnessed then and what we're seeing now. Are you reminded of those days now or does it feel similar or different to uh, to what you lived through in the 90s here? Well, the fundamental difference, of course, is that that, that was a battle over peace with the Palestinians. And um, this is a battle over uh, Israel's democracy. Um, and they're two quite different things. And the opponents of these changes, uh, judicial changes, um, have been doing their best to keep the two issues separate. But nevertheless, it is a very, very much a, a clash between um, the right-wing forces uh, in Israel and and their opponents in the centre and the left, and that's that's similar. But in in many ways, this is more fundamental because Israel was born as a Jewish and democratic state, and throughout its history, seventy-five years, there has always been that tension between its Jewish nature and its democratic nature. And essentially they they remained in balance for the for the last 75 years. Now they are out of in effect Jewish supremacists, Jewish state supremacists, let's call them that, insisting on having their way. And um, that's what's causing the resistance because it it feels like a battle over the future of the country. Uh, which is a little different to the battle over the future of relations with the Palestinians and, and the Arab world. In his writing, um, Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, makes pretty strong links, though, between the fate of the West Bank, of the desires of the far-right uh, settler elements in Israel's government, and this judicial overhaul in that, you know, weakening the courts and weakening the ability of the Supreme Court to intervene uh, as he sees it, is uh, is of a piece with the desire to annex the territories, to, again, undermine the commitment to democracy, to liberal democracy, in order to institutionalize the occupation and to eventually make the West Bank part of Israel. Do you agree with him? Yeah, I do think it is of a piece, but I don't think that most Israelis uh, see it that way, including most of the people that are in, in the streets. They did not want to conflate the two issues. There's no question that Tom is right that, that the far right has an agenda when it comes to the West Bank, call it annexation of all of the West Bank, and they also have this, this judicial reform agenda. But I was hoping that the protest movement would at, certain, at a certain point pivot 
to recognizing that this wasn't just a battle for uh, democratic rights in Israel, for minority rights in Israel standing up against a majoritarian government. But eventually they would come to see that it was also about Palestinian rights. And that never happened. And I think there was a strong desire uh, for the sake of the unity of the opposition, which included centrists and rightists uh, who did not agree with, with what has come to be termed leftists in Israel uh, about the Palestinian issue. Um, so that, that desire to keep it separate is in effect, I think, given the annexationists, the settler lobby, and their representatives, particularly Smotrich and Ben Gvir, are a free pass to pursue their objectives in the West Bank. And, and in the middle of this uh, judicial crisis, uh, Smotrich held a meeting last week, which your newspaper reported on, uh, of all of the factions, including the opposition factions, in which he laid out his plans to uh, start a process of uh, demolishing Palestinian construction in not in area C, but in areas A and B, which are supposed to be under the control of the Palestinian Authority under the Oslo Accords. And he has no legal right to do that. And yet he's blatantly making clear that, that he's going ahead with that intention. And while the government that he exists in has declared that they want to bolster the Palestinian Authority, he's, he's declaring openly that he wants to destroy it, declare it as an enemy and destroy it. So um, they are not holding back on their agenda uh, for one minute. Um, and I expect that we'll see more steps like that in the aftermath of this vote. But um, the opposition uh, has chosen uh, for tactical reasons, I think, um, to maintain the solidarity of the opposition, the unity of the ranks of the opposition by simply ignoring uh, this issue for the time being. Uh, and, and that's essentially been, been the story uh, since the collapse of the peace movement uh, many years ago after Rabin's assassination. And I think that, that um, there's been a lot of whistling past the graveyard when it comes to the Palestinian issue. Uh, eventually, Israelis will have to confront it, but but the challenge to Israel's democracy has become so overwhelming that I don't see that as likely in any in, in, in any near term. Two days ago, a column was published in the New York Times in which you, together with another former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Dan Kurtzer, other interviewees, including Aaron David Miller, who's uh, done long stints as a Middle East negotiator here, you all spoke to Nick Kristof of the Times and were stars of his column, which was headlined, With Israel, It's Time to Start Discussing the Unmentionable. In the piece, Christoph kind of gingerly is asking, is it time to think about phasing out American aid to Israel down the road? And plunging in, he asks, does it really make sense for the United States to provide the enormous sum of $3.8 billion annually to another wealthy country, saying that, quote, American aid to another rich country squanders scarce resources and creates an unhealthy relationship damaging to both sides. Uh, in the column, you agree with him, uh, and there's a quote in which you say that 
Israel can afford it and it would be healthier for the relationship if Israel stood on its own two feet. That made some headlines here, given as USA to Israel is viewed as something of a sacred cow in pro-Israel circles and in Israel. And supporting it is a fundamental criteria for any U.S. politician who wants American Jewish support. Um, is your position news? Is this something you felt and expressed for a while, or is it a conclusion you've come to recently? No, it's some, something I've felt for a long time, um, including when I was ambassador in Israel. And it's, uh, I, want, I want to make clear that it's a, a view that's held out of concern for the well-being of Israel, not for a desire to punish or sanction Israel, or exercise leverage over Israel. Um, but it's 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 a straightforward proposition. Israel's GDP in 2022 was 520 billion dollars. Uh, the military assistance that the United States provides Israel is 3.8 billion dollars a year. So it's less than one percent. It's about 0.75 of one percent of Israel's GDP. Israel is a rich country enjoys a high standard of living uh, and can easily afford that 0.73 of 1% of its GDP to pay its own way when it comes to uh, purchasing uh, weapons from the United States. And, and, you know, 75 years gone, it's a, a good opportunity, I think, if we didn't have so many other issues uh, in the relationship, for Israel to step back and say, do we really need to have this relationship of dependency? Wouldn't it be healthier for our relationship with the United States if we weren't going cap in hand as a rich country to to ask the United States to subsidize us? Um, and you know, I'm reminded of a time when I was ambassador in 1996 and came back to Washington with the newly elected prime minister who spoke, I think it was before the Senate rather than a joint session of Congress, and introduced what was then quite a controversial idea that Israel no longer needed to depend on American economic assistance and at the time it was running at about $500 million a year, I think. That prime minister was Bibi Netanyahu. And, and during the, over the next five years, we, the United States and Israel, worked together to wean Israel off its dependence on American economic assistance. It's obvious today that Israel didn't need it. Um, and... So, I mean, there are, and it's important to say, and Christoph did allude to my comments in this regard, but didn't actually quote me, that there are dimensions to our security relationship with Israel that would have to be preserved in this. Um, for example, you might remember after the last Gaza war that then Defence Minister Benny Gantz came to Washington and asked for a billion dollars to replenish Israel's military supplies. That was under a separate memorandum of understanding, which dates back to the 1973 war and the 1975 
uh, Sinai Interim Agreement, uh, in which the United States committed to replenish Israel's supplies used in war. That's a very important uh, safety net for Israel as it contemplates dealing with the threats to its security. So, you know, I don't think we should play with those kinds of things. We shouldn't play with Israel's uh, R&D cooperation with the United States, which the United States funds most, if not all of. I'm thinking about Arrow and Iron Dome and, and so on. Not just because that that is uh, helpful to Israel, but because it, the United States gains direct benefit from participating in that, those joint R&D projects. But when it comes to that uh, overall assistance bill, which essentially goes straight to the, the defense industrial complex in the United States to pay for the Israeli jets that, that Israel purchases, the F-16s and F-35s and so on. The Beltway wisdom, isn't it, that it's some kind of a self-subsidy to the American military industry, which makes certain uh, states happy in terms of the the, the guaranteed uh, income. So therefore, while it's you know viewed maybe as a handout to Israel, it's really so much in the interests of uh, of several legislators that uh, that that's why the reason it's uh, it's considered the sacred cow that uh, that nobody wants to touch. Yeah, it's one of the reasons, not the only reason. I think that that in the nature of sacred cow, it builds up a, a certain consensus and then nobody dares to, to question it. Uh, but what I'm suggesting is not that, that the United States question it, is that Israel follow the example of Prime Minister Netanyahu in 1996 and come to its own conclusion that it can afford to stand on its own two feet out of self-respect, out of a desire for independence. Isn't it time for Israel to pay its way? It's not a big bill. Uh, you mentioned that you didn't advocate this position because you believe that the aid should be used as some sort of leverage over Israel, that you advocated in order to punish Israel for its uh, you know, behavior when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or today Israel were wrestling with liberal democracy and the balance of power, which Friedman kind of suggests it should be used as in, the, in his recent columns. But instead, Christoph called for a discussion in a non-ideological, patient way, exploring what is best for both countries. So in your position against the military aid, it's not in the framework of using it as some sort of a stick in the carrot and stick manner and trying to encourage it towards uh, policies when it comes to peace and relations uh, within the region. Exactly. Now, were I in government, I wouldn't have minded having some leverage over Israel when I was trying to negotiate peace um, to get them to uh, pay attention to America's concerns. We have consistently opposed settlement activity. Uh, it wouldn't, wouldn't have been bad at the time when I watched how settlement activity undermined all of our efforts to try to make peace between Israelis and Palestinians. It would have been nice to have some leverage. But the reality is that leverage doesn't exist. There's no willingness on the part of any political leader in the United States to use that leverage. You have to go back a long way to President George H.W. Bush uh, to find a time when, when we were prepared to use 
the leverage. And, it, and it's problematic because military assistance uh, is important to Israel's security. And, and so, you know, to use it as leverage for other issues, whether it's for Israel's, uh, against Israel's judicial reforms or against uh, Israeli settlement policy. Um, it's, you know, my, my experience over many years that um, there's no uh, willingness to do that on the part of American leaders. We are an indulgent uncle who continues to pay the bill, um, regardless of how our um, wayward nephew behaves in certain circumstances, in particular with regard to the Palestinians and the West Bank and, and the territory there. So, so it's not just not a useful lever, it's not an available lever in the reality of the political relationship. Um, but again, this is not about American policy. This is about whether Israel shouldn't um, say for its own dignity and in sense of independence, we can afford to pay this. But there's definitely a wing, though, of the Democratic Party that loudly and frequently and strongly uh, believes it should be used as a lever when it comes to human rights, when it comes to um, the, the fate of the West Bank. And they link the two issues of the aid and trying to push Israel in a certain direction in policies. And one wonders, post-Joe Biden, uh, with the generational change, if we get another Democratic president in the uh, future, uh, whether that might be put together. Yeah, I mean, you've just made a very good argument for, for, for why Israel should win itself with this assistance. Right, take it uh, off the table. To, to rob those who are antagonistic towards Israel of of their arguments and and their attempt to create leverage and pressure on Israel. Um, so you know it, the the security relationship is too important to be used as political lever. But as long as Israel is dependent, it's always going to be out there for the critics of Israel to use um, to create an expectation of of Israeli behavior and a sanctioning or punishment for Israel if it doesn't pursue the way that they want Israel to behave. And, and that's precisely the point about a relationship of dependency versus Israel being independent and able to stand on its own two feet and pursue its policies. It may still pay a price and certainly uh, it could pay a price in terms of American protection in international forums like the UN if it continues on down a, a road that the United States opposes. But I think it's, it's, it's just much better for Israel's security as well as its independence that it, that it remove that uh, potential lever uh, from, from the relationship. Have you gotten a lot of pushback on your position? I'm. This was a very public display of it. You said you've held it for a while, but uh, have you gotten a lot of argument and, and resistance that uh, that this is part of the glue that uh, holds the two countries together, the unbreakable bond? And how dare you say that uh, that this kind of assistance should end? I've had some blowback, uh, not surprisingly. Um, it's a controversial position. I'm, I'm aware of that, and it's it's also open to misinterpretation um, 
and I think some of the Israeli press wanted to make it about uh, putting pressure on Israel to stop the judicial reforms, which was not what Christoph's comment was about at all. Um, but but I have to say I'm surprised at, the, at how limited the reaction is compared to uh, uh, the surprise, the other surprise, which was the number of people that that said bravo, which I also didn't expect. So it may be that because this far-right Israeli government is such in such bad odour in the United States that that people people don't feel like rushing to uh, to condemn me. But look, I don't have a political position, you know, a party position, or a, uh, a government position anymore. I'm I am uh, far from Washington, and I just think it's useful to have an open debate about these issues and um, let's let's discuss what what is a sacred cow because i firmly believe that that it's in israel's interest not just america's interest that it find a way to wean itself off this uh, dependence on on u.s assistance returning to the news of the day for a moment i can't help wanting to ask you as a former ambassador how appropriate or inappropriate or useful or not useful do you think it is for President Biden to intervene in this matter? We're used to all kinds of diplomatic intervention by the U.S. when it comes to war and peace, when it comes to the Palestinians, when it comes to all kinds of um, uh, relationships that uh, that Israel has for better and for worse with the outside world. But this is such an internal matter. It's such an you know existential internal Israeli matter of what kind of a country we want to be and how Israeli democracy is uh, is supposed to look. Um, again, you know, hearkening back to Tom Friedman, he's been putting out pretty emotional cries for Biden for the administration to get very directly involved in pushing Netanyahu and pushing the Israeli government away from this illiberal uh, direction. I'm curious what you think and what you would be advising and doing if you are still the ambassador or negotiator or very intimately involved in the relationship between the two countries right now. Well, I'm in uh, two minds about this. Uh, I remember very well a time when um, Israelis were calling on the United States to intervene to pressure the government of Menachem Begin and which was when, back in the 1980s. And Begin's response at the time has has stuck in my head ever since, which was, these Israelis propose to cut off the legs of the state so they can push around the cripple in a wheelchair, or something like that. And um, I remember it because at any time when there's a, a big internal dispute in, in Israel, there is inevitably the call for the United States to intervene uh, against the government of Israel at the time. It's been very explicit now. We've had multiple demonstrations in front of the U.S. embassy branch office in Tel Aviv. It goes again to what we've been discussing. If, the, if Israel was not so dependent on the United States, there wouldn't be this feeling that, oh, the United Uncle Sam is going to come in and fix it for us. And I have to say that I'm very proud of the way that the Israeli people took this matter into their own hands and did not 
wait for the United States to intervene and tell Israel what to do, which it would never do anyway. But um, that's all part of the same view that I've been espousing here of Israel standing on its own two feet. Um, the idea that is, the United States shouldn't intervene um, is kind of passe by now. We should just give up on that because the relationship is so close and intimate. Israel intervenes all the time in, in our politics and we intervene a little bit less, but still we intervene in America, in Israeli politics. It's just the nature of the relationship at this stage. Um, and so I, I did support um, the uh, idea of the president speaking out, but that is because he had standing and not just as a true friend of Israel, but as a person who cares about the U.S.-Israel relationship, as do I. And if Israel becomes an illiberal democracy like Hungary and Turkey, and tonight, unfortunately, that's the direction Israel is headed in, it will have a deleterious effect on the relationship between Israel and the United States because we support Israel not just because it's in our interest to do so, and it is, but because we share common values, common democratic values. And for American foreign policy, values are important, sometimes as important, sometimes more important than, than interests. Uh, but they're always there in the minds of Americans, and not just policymakers, in the minds of the American people. Israel enjoys its support from the United States more because it is a fellow democracy in a dangerous part of the world that's standing up for itself than because we have a strategic interest, which we do in seeing a strong Israel uh, capable of defending itself by itself and at peace with its uh, Arab neighbors. Um, so, you know, I think that, that Biden had standing uh, needed to express himself clearly as a friend uh, and as somebody who cares about the future of the U.S.-Israel relationship because it is going to be jeopardized now by the route that this extremist government in Israel has taken. At the beginning of the podcast, you brought up the Jewish holiday of Tisha B'Av in which we think about how uh, internal rifts have been so dangerous historically to the uh, fate of the Jewish people. And so maybe just at the end, I'll ask you to take off your former diplomat hat and put on your diaspora Jew hat. I know you've cared about Israel and uh, dealt with it for years uh, before you were uh, a diplomat representing the United States. How do you feel as a Jew about what's happening to Israel, to the Jewish state? And how do you feel like it's playing abroad to American Jews or Jews around the world who care about Israel, watching it uh, having this dramatic, soul-searching, potentially devastating moment? Heartsick about it as a longtime Zionist, not just a Jew. I um, have always cared deeply about the uh, survival and well-being of the Jewish state. But for me, my Zionism has always been about supporting and defending um, 
and helping a, a Jewish and democratic state of Israel. And Israel's democracy is now on the line and the division it is causing in the country is deeply worrying because I know that the Iranians in particular and their proxies around Israel's borders and Israel's other enemies are just sitting back and watching this in amazement as, as Israel tears itself apart. And when, when reservists refuse to serve and they're backed by some of the most senior former security officials, um, it really does have a powerful impact. They're not the ones to blame. It's the government that's to blame for this. Um, and their unwillingness to pull back is really undermining Israel's deterrent capability. And it worries me a, a great deal. Well, I wish we could conclude this on a more upbeat, hopeful note, but we're going through a difficult time right now. Former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Martin Indyk, thank you so much for coming on Haaretz Weekly. Thanks, Alison. Pleasure to be with you. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Martin Indyk, to my producer, Avri Rosensvi, and my editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm.